Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, some of you know me, some of you don't. I'm Jeff. I used to be a pastor here, uh, but I'm now a pastor at a church called Waterloo Mennonite Brethren Church, WMB, uh, is what we're called. And so I'll just let you in on a few things that uh, Carrie and myself have been up to, and then we'll get into uh, some scripture. Um, so WMB, I don't know how many people are familiar with who that is or what that is. It's a Mennonite Brethren Church. It's a sister church, very similar to us here. Uh, we run two sites across Kitchener-Waterloo, um, and so it's a, it's a larger church. You've been introduced to some of our staff. So we have 24 staff uh, at WMB, and uh, you met Adam, who is the site pastor at Kitchener. He preached here. Uh, and you met Michelle, uh, who is the pastor of theological development and missional engagement. I don't know. <laughs> don't tell Michelle, but I'm not sure what any of that means. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we have been trying to send uh, some preachers your way for you to get to know some of them and to help to meal out here uh, as you guys are, are in transition. WMB is just like uh, this church in the sense of we're recovering from COVID. We're coming out of COVID, and so not everybody has returned. People are progressively starting to return. And so really, it's the same thing, just at, at a bigger scale. Um, things are a little bit different there in how we go about uh, doing sermons and different things like that. And so my sermon today uh, is from a series that we've been doing at WMB, and I know Adam did this as well, through a series called Ordinary People. And so we've been exploring... Uh, ordinary people in scripture and how God has worked through uh, their lives. The writing process, the process at WMB, because we have 106 sermons that have to be preached in a year because of the multi-site, the multi so it's the same sermon happening at both sites, but with two different communicators. So it gets a little bit more complex than like, you know, the hurry up Sunday morning, I got to write a sermon sort of reality. Uh, and so we have a, a preaching team. So we have a, a, a group of, of four core preachers, uh, myself uh, and Sean, who are the co-lead pastors. So we have two lead pastors, uh, and then Michelle and Adam. And then we also bring in our, our youth pastor, which we have the most gifted youth pastor ever, Brad, plus he's got a sick beard. Uh, and uh, we bring him into the fold and our children's ministry pastor as well. And so uh, basically the process is like this. There is a main writer and there's a co-writer. And so we don't ever write anything by ourselves. It's always done together. Uh, and so the main writer will begin the process of writing and then the co-writer and the rest of the team will begin to give feedback into that sermon as we develop it because then two different people have to go and preach the exact same sermon. And it gets a little bit more complex because we do refugee ministry work, and so all of our services are translated into Spanish and Farsi. Uh, so we have both of those communities within WMB, and so we then have to script everything out, and we have to follow the script. Now, how many people know me? So that has been a bit of a learning curve for me to not go off of script, although it's been a huge blessing. I get far less emails. But uh, um, yeah, so, so that's kind of what we've been up to. That's sort of the new process that, that we function under. Uh, I've been enjoying it. I also deeply miss Evergreen. 
I, I miss it here. Uh, we love the KW area, but we also uh, really enjoyed things here. And so I think God has something amazing for this church. Uh, you, you still have young families, uh, and that is kind of a key to the future. One of the things that WMB is we got some work to do there. And so we may be a large church, but we're not nearly as healthy as people think that we are because we don't have a large children's ministry. And that, as you know, seven and a half years with me, I will constantly harp on that that is showing you what your future looks like as a church. Uh, And so you have uh, those pieces of the puzzle. So I'm going to just throw this in. Tamil will love it. But you need to volunteer, folks. You need to get involved in the life of your church. One of the downfalls of big church is that we got so many staff and that everything is staff-driven. And so part of the process of what we're doing is trying to get the people back engaged in the life of the church. So rather than staff running everything, uh, we want staff to come alongside and help and encourage, but we need people functioning in their gifts in the life of the church. And Evergreen's the same. Evergreen's the same. All right, let's open our Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 25. How many people have heard of the golden rule? Anybody ever heard of the golden rule? Yeah, awesome. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, right? A lot of people are familiar with with this little saying, even even those outside of the church, even those that aren't Christians are familiar with what we call the golden rule. But how many people, have you ever pondered this? We're really familiar with this, but how many people truly live their lives by that rule? Like, it's a great rule, isn't it? It, it, it's, it's, It's a great rule until it's not such a great rule. It's great until, you know, you've been mistreated. And then the golden rule tends to turn into this new version of the golden rule. Do unto others as others have done unto you, right? Now often, but not always, this is, I'm, not, I'm not making a blanket statement, but often we live by the concept of the golden rule until it actually becomes real to us, until we're mistreated and then we subtly change it. And it's really subtle in our lives. Sometimes we don't even notice uh, that we're doing it, but you know, I've been wronged. And so don't I have the right to get somebody back because you know, they deserve it. I don't deserve this wrong. They deserve to get me, I deserve to get them back. I deserve the right. I have the right, right? We love our rights nowadays. I, I deserve the, I have the right to get this person back because of what they did to me, right? You know, sometimes when we have been wronged, what we actually do is we project our feelings and our emotions about that wrong onto someone else. You ever been that someone else that's taking the brunt of what someone else has done? And we project our our need for getting them back on someone who often doesn't deserve it. It's often uh, someone close to us who's done nothing wrong, who doesn't deserve it. And and there's been studies done on this. The reason for this is, is psychologists say is that when we feel powerless in one situation, we often compensate and seek power over someone else in order 
to feel better about ourselves. Part of our sinful nature is our deep need for power, our deep need for control. And you heard me talk about that for seven and a half years. Now, this creates an interesting dynamic in our lives. Because what happens is it becomes the do unto others as someone else has done to you. And this is a serious problem with, this is a major problem within our natural human reaction of how we naturally want to get somebody back or we want to get even. Folks, getting even makes you no different than the person that has wronged you. I'm going to say that again. Getting even makes you no different than the person that has wronged you. Literally, by getting even, you have stooped to their level. Now, today in our story, uh, in what at WMB we're calling ordinary people, uh, our story found in 1 Samuel, David, King David, you heard of him? He is living in what they call his fugitive years. And so he's not yet the king. So he slayed Goliath, but he's in that interim time where Saul is still the king. And David is living off of the land. And he's essentially trying to stay out of trouble. He's trying to stay away from the Philistines because they don't really like him because, you know, he slayed their giant, right? And then, like, cut off a head and paraded it through Jerusalem. Remember that story? So they're not really super fond of David, and so they're still looking for him. And, and at the same time, not only is he trying to avoid the Philistines, but he's not even feeling very welcomed in his own country. And so that's ironic, right? He's done these great things for his country, and yet he's not even welcome in it. Here's the thing, though. I'm not going to focus on David, even though David is actually quite ordinary. If you've ever read the scriptures, you would know that David makes mistakes. He's quite ordinary. He's just like you and I. But I think we know a lot about David. What I want to focus on in the character today is a person by the name of Abigail. Has anybody ever heard of Abigail? So what we're going to do is we're going to track through a large portion of scripture, and I'm going to kind of narrate some of this uh, scripture for you. And so 1 Samuel chapter 25, starting at verse 2, I'm using the New International Version. If you have that with you, because I know good Christians always come with a Bible in their hand, ready to go, and we even have it in your pocket, right? Like, so to not have a Bible is like, really? <laughs> so bring a Bible. 1 Samuel 25, starting at verse 2. A certain man in Moen who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He, he, had, thousands, he had thousands of goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. Now, listen to how the Bible describes his wife. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. Like, that's in Scripture, right? Right? So Abigail is an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was a surly and, and was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Now, I'm not going to get into what that means, but the connection between being a descendant of Caleb makes sense of why he's surly and mean in his dealings. That's why Scripture's saying, and he was a Calebite, so go figure. 
Well, David was in the wilderness. He heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. And so he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you. So that's a way of them saying, like, I'm coming in peace, right? Like, this is a good visit. Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were in Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. So basically what's happening here is David is trying to get across to Nabal. He's sent messengers on his behalf, essentially saying this. Listen, Nabal, if you turn a prophet this year, a big part of the reason that you are able to turn that prophet is due to the protection that me and my men provided for you and your shepherds throughout this year. He's saying, like, my men could have taken whatever they wanted from your herd and your workers. Instead, we chose to protect them. Now, this was very common. You would often, as you were out caring for the sheep, for the flock, and they would move the flock around to avoid danger and different things like that, it was very, very normal for robbers to come and rob them of the sheep, of the feed, of all kinds of different aspects of things. And so David is saying this protection that we provided, it actually means something. This is the reason you're going to have a prophet this year. Now let's go to verse 8. Ask your servants and they will tell you. So this is David's representatives talking to Nabal. Therefore be favorable toward my men, since they come at a festive time, Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. In other words, what he's saying is, since we were good to you, you need to be good to us. Verse 9. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. So in a narrative, right? It's like, dun-dun, now the, the pause and the music, and it's all stretched out. And they waited. Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? No one mentioned that. See that in scripture, right? No one mentioned David, the son of Jesse. How does he know that? Well, who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Now, Nabal Nabal knows who David is. Everyone knows who David is at this time, right? This is important to understand. Everybody knows who David is, and he proved it because he knows that David's the son of Jesse. Everybody knows David. He's famously known as the man who beat Goliath, the man who Samuel anointed as king. Kind of a weird situation, right? Because Samuel, the prophet, has anointed David as king, but Saul's still the king. People talk. Rumors fly, right? They knew, Nabal knows who David is. Yet his reply is, I didn't ask David or his men to do anything for me, so why should I have anything to do with them? Why should I have to, to offer this? I never asked for that protection. I didn't get this. I didn't ask for your service. Why should I pay you for it? Ever sound familiar? He continues. 
Verse 11, why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? He knows where. David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. David's reply, folks, is interesting and frankly quite predictable. Verse 13. David said to his men, you ready? Each of you strap on your sword. Makes sense, right? David's done all this good stuff for Nabal. Nabal's not appreciating it. Now David's hurt by this and the drama continues. And so now let's strap on our sword. We got to get them back. And then it says, so they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men, the passage says, went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. Now, okay, this is a very typical Old Testament reply to conflict. A very Old Testament reply to conflict. Someone wrongs you, you now have to solve the wrong with a wrong. And if you're a plucker, we all know what that is, right? Who, right? If you're a person who loves to memorize passages out of context and then use them to say the Bible says, you could then justify an eye for an eye. Evil for evil. Because the Old Testament says so. But does it? But does it? Because what you'll see in the Old Testament, folks, is you'll see narratives where God is setting the law but then progressively moving them toward the way he wants them to be, moving them toward redemption. So this redemptive narrative is happening from Genesis to Revelation. And so you can't just quote the law and say, the Bible says. You have to look at the narrative in how the Bible teaches what it says. Now, that was a rant, and it wasn't in my notes. It's so fun to be here. In the story, fortunately, there are other characters in the story, not just David and his 400 men. And so let's keep reading. Verse 14 of chapter 25. One of the servants, so Nabal's servants, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time, we were herding our sheep near them. Now, I want you to notice in this passage that Nabal's servants are confirming what David's men had said was true. David's men had treated them very well in the wilderness, and this was rare. This was a choice that David and his men were making. And it wasn't uncommon, like I said, for people to prey upon the shepherds and the herds of sheep. People would steal from them all the time, but not this time, because David's men chose to protect them like a wall. What you see in this text here, folks, is Nabal's servants are seriously concerned. And so what do they do? They go to Nabal's wife. Verse 17. 
The servant says, now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five shears of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, and 200 cakes of pressed food pressed figs, and loaded them on the donkey, the greatest potluck ever, (laughs) loaded on a donkey. And then she told her servants, go ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. This is disobedient, right? Because doesn't the scripture say that she's supposed to obey her husband? Hey, pluckers. Verse 17. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. Picture this in your mind. David has 400 men with him, and they're descending toward her through the valley, the very valley in which they're shearing the sheep, where Nabal's making all of his money. This would be a scary sight if you're Abigail and her servants. Because all 400 of them are dressed in battle gear. Their swords are on their hips, ready for a fight. And David, who she knows is the future king of Israel, David, who killed Goliath and is is the one leading the way of these 400 people. And, And this next part, folks, this next part is so rich. I want you to listen especially to this part. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Now, how many people are like, well, yeah, it's David. He's a king. No, he's not. Keep that in mind. He's not a king. He's a fugitive. Okay? This is very strange. When you read this text, this is weird. Right? You should be totally weirded out. Like, what is happening right now? This makes no sense. Because in their culture, Abigail would never bow to David at this point in time. Abigail is the wife of a wealthy man. She has servants working for her. David is not her lord. There is no reason for her to be bowing to him. And so this catches David by surprise. Why? Because this is not normal. This is not what would normally be happening. And it's brilliant. Because what Abigail does here is so amazing. What she does is she begins, I want you to all hear this. And, and men, uh, women, this works with men. She begins to treat David as the man she hopes he will become. Think about that for a minute. If you want somebody to become something that they currently are not, how far does harping on them about their failures create them into who you want them to be? Wouldn't it be better to treat them as if they are that already so that it motivates them and moves them into actually becoming that? She begins to treat David as the man that she hopes he will become. And that sets the tone 
for her entire response. It's so powerful. She looks past the right now, and she looks to his his future as the king. It stops him in his tracks. The kindness and mercy that she offers David in this moment is reflecting the golden rule, and to David, this is radical. She stopped 400 men in their tracks by approaching things this way. Listen, verse 24. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. I want to reiterate, she is not his servant. We think that because we read it through our cultural lens. She is not his servant. What Abigail is doing is a major act of humility. Because in their culture, it was a big deal. You had lords and you didn't bow to someone else as lord. She's showing respect to a warrior fugitive who's coming to kill her family. Think about that for a minute. Verse 25. I love this. Now Abigail speaks. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. I'm sure Carrie has said this about me, right? I am so sorry for my husband. She says he's just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. So I wasn't part of this conversation. So my husband's response does not reflect his whole household. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. It's brilliant what she does here. She's literally saying, since the Lord has already stopped you from doing this horrible thing. Do you see how she, how she treats it differently? Instead of begging, like instead of saying, like, this is a horrible thing you're doing, please don't do it. She literally acts like God's already stopped you from doing it. Then she gives him credit. This is what works with us guys. For being a better man than he is in that moment. Verse 28, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because, you're, because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Folks, she speaks to David's future here, saying, David, God has a plan for your life, a great future because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you. In other words, David... You're a good man. And then she says this, verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the, in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies will he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Did you catch the language here? You see, everyone knew that Saul, the current king, was pursuing David to kill him. That's why he's a fugitive. The king's pursuing him. But what is more fascinating about what Abigail does here is actually the imagery that she uses. 
She says that David is bound secure. Now, what this language is referring to is a wallet or a purse, a place where you would store something valuable, a place where you would take valuable things with you as you travel, such as money. You know, money would be bound into the wallet. And it's, it's a leather uh, pouch, essentially, with long strings. Like some people might have like journals that look like that. You have this like leather journal and then the strings and you wind the strings along. And so what they would do is they had these wallets or whatever valuable things you had, you would put into this pouch, you would wind it up with the strings, and then you would tuck it safely into your belt. Because then it's not going to fall out, right? So not like a belt like I'm wearing. This is like a belt, right? Like think WWF. Anyway. She uses this language to give the imagery that David's life is so secure that it's bound up and hidden. It's placed in a pouch, it's wrapped up, and it's tucked in to God's belt because God is the one who's bound him up and is keeping him safe. She's saying, David, God is saving you. He's saving you for something special, something very specific. You're very valuable to him, and he's keeping you close. And then what she does is she takes him back to being 15 years old again. That was when he defeated Goliath. This is several years later. She she takes him back to being 15 years old again when David was completely dependent on God. When he couldn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't have an army. All he had was a slingshot and his hope and faith in God. That's who 15-year-old David was. But now warrior David, who's one day going to be king, he's got men that could come with him and fight his battles. And so she wants to remind him, God is keeping you in a safe place. He's protecting you. Saul won't be able to get you because you're bound. But you need to remember what it was like to actually be fully dependent on God rather than independent and able to mount your swords and your army. And then she asks David a question about his future. She essentially asks this. I'll show you it in a second. What story do you want to tell here, David? When you look back on this day, What story do you want to tell? Verse 30. When the Lord has fulfilled my Lord, every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel. So someday when you are the king, not if you are, when you are, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, Remember your servant. You see, folks, one day David is going to tell a story. Everything we do turns into a story, right? We only share certain ones. But everything we do about our life becomes a story after it's now been done. It's a future thing, and now it's a past thing, and now in the future you're telling it as a story of the past. So in that moment, In this moment for David, do you want the slaying of innocent people to be a permanent part of that story? Do you want that to be your narrative? 
Do you really want to tell a story of needless bloodshed? Is that the kind of man that you've become? So she lifts him up by treating him who she believes he will one day be, but she reminds him that at one point in his life he was fully dependent on God, and these are two very different people. At this moment, in the narrative, David comes to his senses. His temperature kind of drops a little, and he begins to see things a little bit more clearly. Let's go to verse 32. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. In other words, you've saved me, Abigail, from doing something that I would have regretted. And thank God that he used you and your good judgment. Verse 35, then David accepted from her hand, so this is good. So then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. The man never leaves without the food. (laughs) Now, Abigail is so smart. Listen, Listen to what Abigail does. Verse 36, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Probably kind of smart, right? He's he's drunk, he's in good spirits, now's not the time. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and listen to what happened. His heart failed him and he became like a stone. Imagine knowing that David the one who slayed Goliath, was actually coming to kill you. And your wife was the one who was able to stop it. It doesn't go well for him. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Then David says this, verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord. Maybe not always the way to react when somebody dies. But he says, praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. So the way that David, he's not fully there yet, folks. Okay? So the way that David's viewing this is that God struck him down for David's sake because David chose. So, so we're a work in progress, us men. Right? It's true, we're a work in progress. And so he's not, he's not quite there. And he said, he's kept a servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. Now, the one thing though that I do give David credit for noticing is God's work in it all. And that was the one thing that David was good at. That's why the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. It wasn't because David was perfect. We know that. He like slept with people's wives, had people killed. David did all kinds of stuff that I've never done. Right? But... But he always noticed and was aware of how God was working in things. And so read that into that passage. Now listen to this. So all of this has happened. Now Nabal's dead. Verse 39, then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. Now that's a wise man, right? Like, hey, wait a minute, she's single? Right? She's intelligent, beautiful. She just saved him from God worked through. I, she's going to be one of my many wives. 
Listen to Abigail's response, verse 42. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. The Bible also says that David's quite handsome. So let me quickly summarize this. I have no idea how long I've been. I forgot to set my timer. Sorry. I'm taking advantage of everything I can't do in Waterloo. So Nabal responds with evil for good. David responds with evil for evil. But Abigail responds with good for evil. Do you see what happened in this narrative? So it doesn't matter that you can pluck out verses. You've got to look at how it plays out in people's lives, the narratives, the stories. Abigail's response here, this good for evil, is way ahead of her time. Because people who were living in the Old Testament covenant, which is where this story is based, they were fully allowed by the bounds of the law to return evil for evil. What David was doing, we step back and go, oh yeah, like this is the wrong thing. Folks, understand this. David's religion, Judaism, in its laws at this time said what David was doing was perfectly fine, perfectly warranted. It was in line with what God wants. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What Abigail presented to David was way ahead of her time, and it was much more new covenant in nature. And this is what happens in Scripture. You see pictures. So you've got this law, this framework, but then you see pictures of God redemptively moving people away from that framework and preparing him for the coming of Christ. This is much more, Abigail's moves here are much more new covenant than they are old. They don't make sense. The new covenant turns this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing completely upside down. Let let me give you an example. The apostle Peter, we've heard of him. I preached through 1 Peter here at Evergreen. And we're going into a 1 Peter series at WMB starting not next week because they're getting this sermon next week, um, but the week after that. The Apostle Peter, I want to remind you, who saw Jesus unjustly accused, unjustly crucified, keep that context in mind, he writes something fascinating to a group of Christians who in the first century were being drastically unjustly treated. Listen to what Peter writes. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. Do not... Repay evil with evil or insults with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Let's back up for a second. Let's take a snapshot of the past two and a half years of our lives. How did the church respond? Did we respond with blessing? Did we become a blessing to the nations? Or did an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth become our reality because of our opinion? And that goes for all different, I'm not given an opinion. That goes for all different postures in which we postured ourselves. Did we make a difference in the world or 
did we posture ourselves in an Old Testament posture, dig our heels in, and try to get our opinion heard and known? I think we hurt ourselves in the past two and a half years when I think God laid out a red carpet to say, Christians, you can be a blessing. And I think we were the opposite. I think it's why we're smaller. I think it's why we're becoming more and more irrelevant in the world today. I'll go on with the passage. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So repay evil with a blessing, and then you will be blessed. For whoever would love life and sees good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. And then guess who Peter quotes? He quotes David. He quotes David. And he says, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. He's talking to people who are being wrongly accused and persecuted. He's giving direction to Christians who are being mistreated because of their faith. Where did Peter get this from? Guess who? Jesus. He got it from watching Jesus. Not just hearing Jesus, but from watching Jesus. Peter was there when Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies, because that's what the Old Testament says. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But he doesn't say pray for those who persecute you to decide you're right. He doesn't say that. Respond by submitting your life to God and pray by lifting them up to him. Folks, refusing to respond to a wrong with a right, sorry, Refusing to respond to a wrong with a wrong might be the most Christ-like thing that you could ever do. Think about that. Refusing to respond to a wrong with a wrong might be the most Christ-like thing that you could ever do. I want to end today with giving you three questions that you can use personally that will help you to deal with difficult situations in your life. These are the three questions I want you to ask whenever you feel wronged, whenever you feel like your way should be the way, whenever you feel uh, anything. These are the three questions I want you to ask. Do I really want to be just like the person who has done the wrong? Because if you pay wrong with wrong, you just became just as wrong as the wrong. That was brilliant. Then I want you to ask this question. Everything turns into a story. So what story do you want to tell? And last, what would it look like for me to return good for evil? Would it look different than how I'm currently responding? Abigail showed David the way of Jesus, 
in a time when it was perfectly acceptable to return evil for evil. She could have quoted scripture. He could have quoted scripture and said, Abigail, the law says I can do this. In our world today, I think one of the most countercultural things is to return good for evil. I think it's probably one of the most difficult things that we could possibly do, which is exactly why Jesus calls us to be like that. Because he calls us folks to be different from the world. To be, to, if we go back to Abrahamic covenant language, to be a blessing to the nations. So as you go today, what story do you want to tell with your life? Can I pray for you? Father, I thank you, Lord, for some of these difficult teachings but that the way that you placed them into the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to show us your redemptive movement of leading us to being more and more like Jesus. That even someone like David, a man after God's own heart, needs these corrections in his life, needed somebody like Abigail for God to use to stop him from doing wrong to move him into a more Jesus-like posture, even though David couldn't even fathom at that point who Jesus was. And Father, I pray that we would notice God working in our lives that way. That in those moments when we're about to respond because we've been wronged, that we would take a step back and that we would ask ourselves these questions. Do I really want to be like the person who wronged me? God, how do you want me to posture myself in the midst of this so I can be a blessing? And Lord, we trust you. Because ultimately, that's how we summarize the entire scriptures. Is you're just saying, do you trust me? And so I pray, Lord, that today our answer to that question, do you trust me, would be yes. I actually don't trust myself. Because myself is bathed in sin. I'm born into it. It's my natural disposition. And so I need you, Lord, to be able to respond this way. And the only way to do that is to trust you. And so I pray, Lord, that our answer today to your call of, do you trust me? Are you willing to let go of control? Are you willing to learn from my son's posture? Would be yes. And all God's people said, amen.